You're listening to Formby Podcast. In this episode, Joan Rimmer reads Viking Village, edited by Edith Kelly, published by the Formby Society in 1973. It takes us from Formby's beginning in the Ice Age right the way through to today. But in this chapter, chapter one, we start at the very beginning, the Ice Age, shifting sands. Enjoy. Formby Civic Society is still a very active society today in Formby. You can see all of the pictures of Formby, old Formby through the ages, on the Flickr site, Formby Civic Society at Flickr. If you'd like to join Formby Civic Society, email membership at formbycivicsociety.org.uk. Viking Village, the story of Formby, edited by Edith Kelly BA, with illustrations by Muriel E. Sibley and Mildred M. Wason, published by the Formby Society, 1973. Preface. The contributors to this book are members of the Formby Society who have been working on different aspects of the history and natural history of Formby for many years. So much interest has been shown in their work and they have received so many inquiries from students, teachers and newcomers to the district that it seemed necessary that the information should be brought together into one volume and published. This has been made even more desirable since the new grouping of, the, of towns for local government threatens to destroy the close communities of the West Lancashire coast. The Formby Urban District Council have very generously made a handsome contribution to help with printing, binding and publication. And to them, I would like to say how greatly we appreciate this gesture. I would like to mention in this preface the late Mr. William Marshalsea, who through his own enthusiasm, inspired many of us to begin our inquiries. He and Mr. Fred Beardwood, both Sandgrounders, were founder members of the Formby Society and both helped in the researches that were undertaken. I reproduce in this work two chapters of Mr Beardwood's notes on the history of Formby with his permission. I must also mention my husband, Professor Tom Kelly, and Dr James Murphy of Liverpool University, who in the early years of the history group worked on some of the records of Formby for the Society. The late Dr R.K. Gresswell, also of Liverpool University, did many years of research on the coastline of West Lancashire, which resulted in the publication of his book, Sandy Shores of South West Lancashire. He was also a friend of the Society and readily gave his time and assistance to help our work. November 1972, Edith Kelly. The History of Formby. Origins and Early Settlement Shifting Sands Formby is situated in the centre of the coastal area of South West Lancashire, 13 miles north of Liverpool and 7 miles south of Southport. Formby Point, not really a point any longer, but rather a large bulge, thrusts out into the sea to the west. 
To the east of Formby Point, the ground rises in three stages, first to the old coastline, about 25 feet above sea level. This contour is known as the Hillhouse coastline, as it is most clearly seen at Hillhouse Farm Altca. Further east, Cleves Hill and Eccleston Hill rise to about 200 or 250 feet and extend south to Woolton and Prescott. Still further east, we reach the foothills of the Pennines in Parbold Hill, Ashurst Beacon and Billinge Hill, between 500 and 600 feet high. Seaward of the hills lies the flat featureless plain of southwest Lancashire, the sky broken by such modern developments as the enormous gasometer behind Southport to the north, and to the south, the high-rise flats of Bootle and Liverpool, and the towers of the two cathedrals. Behind these again can be seen to the south the line of the River Mersey, backed by the Welsh hills. To the north lies the distant coast of Lytham with Blackpool Tower rising up beyond, and in the far distance the vague outline of the Cumberland Hills. Across this plain four rivers flow. To the south is the Mersey with its line of docks extending along the western coast. In the north the River Ribble enters the sea in a wide estuary north of Southport. In the east the River Douglas flows from Rivington Moors near Bolton through a Liverpool reservoir, then south to Wigan, where it makes a loop and turns northwest through a deep valley between Parbold Hill and Ashurst Beacon to join the river, the Ribble Estuary. The Little River Alt, smallest of the four, rises in Heighton near Liverpool and flows northwest through the village of Sefton to Altca, just south of the southern boundary of Formby where it is joined by the Down Holland Brook. Then, close to the sea, it turns south again and flows parallel to the shore till it enters the sea at Hightown. The rivers Ribble and Mersey neatly cut off this plain to the north and the south, and the geographical position gave rise to the doomsday title of this land between Ribble and Mersey. The distinction is very apt as this southwest part of Lancashire has characteristics which set it apart from the rest of the county. At one time, the coastline was much further west, beyond the Isle of Man, but when the ice of the last ice age began to melt, around 10,000 BC, the increased water in the sea caused it to flood the coastal plain and drown much of the land forming a new coastline east of the present one. This is the Hill House coastline, to which I have already referred. The line can be traced throughout South Lancashire and beyond, and explorations have revealed sand and shells from the old seashore at the foot of the former cliffs. The sand grains are different in shape from the sand of the modern shore, and it has been called Sherdley Hill Sand, from one of the places where it can be found. At some time after 5000 BC, the sea began to retreat again as the land, released from the weight of the ice cap, slowly rose and a new coastline was established 
four to five miles west of the present one. Gradually, the newly exposed land became covered with vegetation as forests of oak, birch and alder grew. These forests must have been extensive and they flourished in a climate which was predominantly warm and dry. Later, however, a climatic change brought cold, wet conditions and the trees on the flat Lancashire plain became waterlogged. The lack of drainage caused them to rot at the roots and as the vegetation too rotted and formed peat, the trees fell and lodged in the peat beds, blown sand from the river estuaries and alluvial mud from the rivers covered the peat and slowly new soil and fresh vegetation formed on the top. At the beginning of historic times, the sea off this coast was still westward of its present position and it has been gradually moving in again almost ever since. This ancient history of the seashore, or should it be geography, is responsible for the presence of peat underneath the mossland to the east of Formby and for the forest of fallen oak and birch which lies beneath the surface of the land to the west. Farmers on the moss are well acquainted with the peat and often plough up whole logs or trunks of ancient trees. These are very hard and have been used for building purposes by cottagers in the more remote parts of the district. The buried forest has been exposed for many years on the shore at Hightown, where there has been erosion near the mouth of the Alt. And from time to time, after a heavy storm, it is exposed at Formby. Twice in recent years, after the wind has stripped off the covering of sand, patches of peat have appeared with large tree trunks embedded in them. But they have soon been covered by sand again at high tide. The buried forests and the flatness of the land here have been remarked on in past centuries by travellers to these shores. William Camden, who published in 1607 an account of his antiquarian tours of Britain, says of this region, Near Sefton, the little river Alt, making its way to the sea, gives to a little village the name of Altmouth. Near it is Furnaby, Formby, in whose marshes they dig turf which serves the inhabitants for both fire and candle. Below the turf they find a stagnant blackish water on whose surface swims an oily substance. And in the water are little fishes which the diggers take up so that one may call these fossil fish. Nor is it surprising when in such watery places fish follow the moisture underground that men go fishing with spades. William Blundell of Little Crosby says in his book, A Cavalier's Notebook, written in the 17th century, the oily matter here mentioned is found to be of great use in paralytic cases, but as, as to the live fish underground, no such thing is now known, and therefore it was probably a mere vulgar error. The existence of the village called Altmouth cannot be proved, though it appears on Saxton's map of 1577. If it once existed, it must have been destroyed and no trace of it is left. In 1636, the Reverend Richard James 
wrote in his book, Iter Lancastrans, the much quoted verse about the buried forest. And in some places, when ye see doth bait, down from ye shore tis wonder to relate how many thousands of these trees now stand, black broken from their roots, which once dry land did cover, whence turf's Neptune yields to show, he did not always to these borders flow. A paper published in 1969 by M.J. Tooley dates the formation of peat at the mouth of the Alt from about 2600 BC. This evidence is from an analysis of pollen found in digging there. The pollen showed remains of alder, oak and birch in the peat. A photograph of the late Dr. R.K. Gresswell, author of Sandy Shores in South Lancashire, 1953, shows him standing beside a 43 feet long trunk of oak revealed at the Alt Forest site. Similar Though smaller trees appeared on Formby Shore in 1966, 200 yards north of Lifeboat Road. Encroachment of the sea on the land was very great during the Middle Ages. A coastal area called Argamiles, now named in Doomsday Book as Erringer Males, which lay near to Ainsdale and was still in existence in 1361, had by 1503 completely disappeared, swallowed up by the sea. The owner of the land, Sir Henry Halsell, was sued by the King, Henry VII, for tax due on the land. Sir Henry refused to pay on the grounds that the land was at the decease of his father, and long before, within the high sea and drowned and annihilate with the said sea, and out of the low water mark, and also out of the said county. His point was well made, and he was released from his obligation to pay tax on the vanished land. This lost land is commemorated in the name Argamiles Road on the northern edge of Formby. During the time that Argamiles was disappearing, part of Ainsdale was washed away too, and about one half of the manor of Ravenmills. In fact, the history of these parts shows that nothing is more uncertain than the extent of the land near the coast. Accretion of land has taken place in some parts, encroachment of the sea on the land in others. The pattern sometimes changes, but near Formby encroachment of the sea continued throughout the Middle Ages and until the 19th century, when there was a temporary building up of sandhills to the west of the shoreline. This was followed by further encroachment in the present century, which is still continuing between Formby Point and Victoria Road. Below the surface, boring has shown old red sandstone to a great depth, and above this, new red sandstone, which comes to the surface in the outlying hills of the Pennines and in quarries nearer to the coast. Above the new red sandstone is a layer of boulder clay, the mixture of mud and stones brought down from the mountains by gl glaciers from the last ice age and deposited on the lower land. Above the clay is a layer of sand deposited during the Hill House coastline period. And above this again is the peat 
formed from the retreat of the sea, with the remains of trees lying embedded in it. In places in the vicinity of the rivers and the Downholland Brook, there is a layer of alluvium known as Downholland silt, giving patches of fertile soil. Blown sand forms the next layer, blown onto the land from the beach in recent times and lying in some places as far as three miles inland. Finally, above this last sandy deposit is the present surface soil. To the seaward side of the recent blown sand lies the dune area. On the inner or established dunes, rough grass and moss, creeping willows and dewberries grow. There are also extensive areas of pine forest planted at the end of the 19th century by the owners of the land to prevent erosion and to utilise the land. The valleys called slacks between the inner dunes are rich in wildflowers, some of them rare. The outer dunes are planted with marum grass or star in an effort to stabilise them and prevent the sand from blowing inland. Some of these dunes are 50 feet or more in height, steep to the west and sloping more gently to the east in the lee of the prevailing wind. There is some reclaimed land at the mouth of the Alt, now used as a rifle range and at Freshfield. The reclaimed fields are often bounded by sandy banks, grass covered, called locally cops. The land slopes from the high dunes down towards the east and southeast, and the centre of Formby is actually a little below sea level. The South Lancashire Plain was until recent times waterlogged in bad weather. The River Alt and the Downholland Brook overflowed in wet weather, and the estuary of the Alt was at one time so wide that at high tide it is said that people were able to go to Altca Church in boats as the river was navigable for three miles upstream. Attempts at drainage have been made since the 13th century when embankments were first built to check the flooding of the river. These have been enlarged from time to time and floodgates have been built to stem the force of the tide. The rest of the area has been covered by a network of drainage ditches, the water flowing not west to the sea, but eastwards into the Downholland Brook and so into the Alt. These ditches can be seen in many places. A well-known one, still not culverted for much of its length, flows down Long Lane from Freshfield Road and is known as Dobbs Gutter. Indeed, as William Camden observed, Brackish water is everywhere near to the surface. This water table, the natural drainage system of the plain, is called the Ream and is responsible for the almost complete absence of cellars to houses in the district, for they would certainly be flooded if built much below ground. The River Alt has changed its course over the years, whereas it used to flow westwards into the sea, its outlet has been blocked by blown sand, forming dunes in its path, and it now flows, or meanders, parallel to the shore for some distance in a southerly direction, entering the sea at Hightown. 
It is difficult, however, to say when this change took place, as the older maps of the area are not sufficiently reliable to be used in evidence. The Settlement of the Lancashire Plain At the beginning of historical time, the West Lancashire Plain was, as we have seen, low-lying, marshy, undrained and subject to flooding by river and sea. Behind the coast where Southport now stands was a great lake. It was three miles wide and four miles long and became known as Martin Mere. There were numerous other small lakes, White Otter Pool on the moss near Ainsdale, Black Otter Pool and Getern Mere between Ainsdale and Formby, Barton Mere between Formby and Hulsell and the Kirk Lake east of the church at Formby. Besides these, there were great expanses of land around the River Alt in Formby, Alker and Sefton, and round the Downholland Brook in Formby, which were subject to the tidal flooding of the river. Much of the land which was not regularly flooded was still marshland or mossland. It had once been the shore of the Hill House period. Martin Mere had been Martin Bay, and the River Douglas had entered the sea there. Sandhills blown up by the westerly winds had later blocked the bay and Martin Mere became a shallow inland lake while the River Douglas was diverted northwards into its present channel. The marshy state of the land must have made it unattractive to early settlers, though there is some evidence of Neolithic and Bronze Age people in the Liverpool district and some at Martin Mere. During the draining of the Mere, weapons of both these periods were discovered and at least 11 dug out canoes. These are the simplest form of boat made from a hollowed out log and are difficult to date, but from their depth in the peat, it is possible to say that some of them are prehistoric. Two of these canoes can still be seen, one in the coach house at Rufford Hall now hardly distinguishable from the log out of which it was made, and another of later date in the museum at Southport. There is a prehistoric burial mound on Parbold Hill, but it is not known whether or not the coastal region was ever occupied by these early settlers. One stone adze was found on the moss behind Formby and deposited in the Liverpool Museum, from which it has since disappeared probably in the Blitz. This is much too slender evidence for us to draw conclusions from, though it is possible that other evidence has been turned up by the plough and remained unrecognised. The first firm evidence of settlement on the plain can be deduced from the place names of the district. The names of the rivers Alt and Douglas are Celtic, British. The word Inns in the place name Innsblundel is also Celtic. It means an island, in this case an island in a marsh. Walton is Anglo-Saxon and means the town of the Welsh or Celts, which suggests that there was a pocket of Celts remaining there when the Anglo-Saxons inhabited the region. There seems therefore to be some evidence of Celtic settlement on the coastal plain. The Romans ignored West Lancashire it was still unattractive on account of its marshes, and in any case, it was off the direct route to the north. 
The progress of the Roman armies through Lancashire was made for the purpose of advancing their front line to the Scottish border. To avoid the difficult marshy country, they made their roads well inland, crossing over the Mersey at Warrington, then passing through Wigan, Waltonley Dale, Preston, Ribchester, Lancaster and on to the north. Claims are often made that a Roman road ran from Wigan to the coast at Formby, but no evidence for this has ever been discovered. After the departure of the Romans, the Anglo-Saxon invaders settled mainly in the south and east of the country at first, and gradually pushed north and west. The British opposed them in AD 616 at the Battle of Chester and were defeated and thus the west of the country was opened up to the invaders, who had penetrated to the coast of Lancashire by the year AD 650. Nennius, a monk and writer of history round about the year AD 800, tells a story of the semi-mythical and ubiquitous King Arthur, leader of the British. King Arthur, he says, fought many battles in the region of Lake Linnaeus, Martin Mere and the River Douglas in Lancashire, and put the Saxons to flight near Wigan, and the River Douglas ran with their blood to the sea. Nennius was a Welshman and had the gift of imagination, so that we cannot take this story too seriously. Again, lacking written evidence, we turn to place names to help us to form an idea of how much settlement of the region took place in this period and again we see evidence of settlement in the more inland areas, but very little near the coast. Melling and Billinge are names belonging to the early period of Anglo-Saxon invasion. At a later period, Anglo-Saxons moved into West Lancashire from the Midlands, Cheshire and East Lancashire, and such names as Sefton, Thornton, Barton, Orton and Martin were introduced at this time. In the middle of the 9th century, the Danes invaded England. They came to the east coast and pushed across the country, taking possession of land as they went. But although they penetrated to Manchester and East Cheshire, they did not reach West Lancashire. Later, however, West Lancashire was attacked by another invasion from Scandinavia. These invaders were descendants of the Norsemen, or Vikings, who had first sailed round the north of Scotland and settled in the Scottish Isles, the Isle of Man and Ireland. From Ireland, they crossed the sea to the west coast of England, first raiding, then returning to settle. All the western coastal lands of England, from Cumberland to the Wirral, were occupied by these new invaders at the beginning of the 10th century. Again, place name evidence is very revealing about this new settlement. Looking at South Lancashire alone, we find Norse names along the coast from the Ribble to the Mersey in Hesketh, Crossens, Birkdale, Ainsdale, Argomeels, Formby, Ravenmeels, Alka, Crosby, Litherland, Kirkdale, Toxteth, Egbeth. Inland, we find Scaresbrick, Ormskirk, Tarlscoe, Burscoe, Scammersdale, Lunt, Aintree, Croxteth, West Derby, Roby and Thingwall. 
Thingwall is the name which the Norsemen gave to the local meeting place of their parliament, as in Tinwald in the Isle of Man. Whether or not the invaders had to fight for these lands, we do not know. Local tradition says that when they failed to defeat the natives on the Formby coast, they sailed inland up the River Alt and attacked them in the rear. It is more probable that they found the coast very thinly populated and were able to take possession without shedding a drop of native blood. The familiar name ending in BY is from the Scandinavian BYR and means a homestead, settlement, village or town. Formby was originally spelt Fornaby, F-O-R-N-E-B-E-I and its meaning is either Forney's town, Forney is a well-known Norse personal name, or the old town. There is a Fornaby in Norway today where Oslo Airport is situated and the authorities there confirm these alternative meanings. Forney could have been the leader of the expedition which took possession here. Alternatively, there could have been a settlement of people already established here, which the new settlers referred to as the Old Town. In 19th century maps, the name Old Town is given to the area around Old Town Lane. Ravenmeals, the southern coastal area of Formby, is derived from the personal name Raven or Raffen and the word meals, which means sandhills, is found in North Meals, Argamils, and Mells in the Wirral. Raven Mills was formerly Raven's Meals, meaning the sandhills, belonging to Raffen, Raven, presumably another Norse warrior. It is clear that the Norsemen were the first people to settle on this coast in any numbers. They would live by fishing, bird catching, and primitive agriculture in this inhospitable land. If there were other settlers here before them, they would become labourers for the newcomers, but intermarriage would soon banish their differences. Some Norse words have survived from this period into the vocabulary of the present day. Meals or mels, sandhills, slack from the Norse slacky is a wet valley, kirk a church. The personal surnames Aindo and Rimmer, still very well known here, are very likely of Norse origin. Rimmer might even become from the word H-R-I-M-R, -R, Rimmer meaning a giant. So by the 10th century the coastal and inland parts of this plain were at last inhabited by groups of settlers and we can begin the authentic history of the village called Formby. So that's chapter one complete. Twelve chapters altogether. We'll release them each week. Thanks to Joan Rimmer for reading chapter one. Join us next time for Viking Village, edited by Edith Kelly on behalf of the Formby Society, published in 1973. Formby Podcast is an independent production. If you'd like to contact us with your story or you have a story to tell, email us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>